Good morning. I messed Will up in the first service. I came up on this side, and he was shocked and surprised and amazed. Um, I hope everybody's doing well today. Uh, I am not Pastor Craig Dale, uh, as you heard from uh, Ted. Who's that guy that was up here? Ted. Um, and so, uh, so there's hope. Uh, if you like the sermon, tell your friends. Uh, if you don't, Craig will be back next week. So, uh, but it's always a pleasure and an honor to stand up here uh, and to fill in. Uh, and I hope, uh, it is my prayer, uh, that you are praying for your pastor just as much while he's on vacation as you do when he's up here in the pulpit. Uh, because without times of retreat uh, and relaxation and time with family, uh, he would not be able to stand up here and preach to you uh, the Word of God. Uh, and so uh, thank you for allowing us that time uh, to get away and relax and enjoy. Uh, and for those that follow my family on Facebook, um, Danielle and the girls are back. Uh, it's good to have all of us in the same, under the same roof again. And uh, they had a great trip away as well. So uh, excited about this morning, excited to be in Daniel chapter 3 today. Uh, and so let's get to it. Uh, as I was preparing for my sermon, uh, came across a story about this guy who loved to go to flea markets, garage sales. He was just a junker. Uh, he loved to go and, and check out cool things, see what he could find, see what little treasures he could find. Uh, and this one particular Saturday morning, he came across the statue of Jesus. Now, it was not this grand statue. It was not made of marble. It was not made of gold or anything like that. It was just, he, for some reason it struck him as this beautiful statue that he wanted to buy. Uh, in fact, uh, he left it. He's like, no, my wife would kill me if I brought that home. We don't need one more piece of thing because I can't throw it away. Um, it's a statue of Jesus. Why, how would I throw it away? And, uh, and so he's like, ah, so, but he just couldn't get it out of his mind. So he went back. He bought it, brings it home. He's just proud of it. He's ready you know, to put it on display. And so naturally... A man that decides this is something he's proud of, where is he going to put it? Right in the middle of the family room of the house. So the kitchen table sticks a statue of Jesus that's not all that pretty, but just something that struck him. And uh, without telling his wife, of course, he just comes in, he's admiring it, and his wife walks in and she goes, what is that? He's like, it's Jesus. She's like, I know it's Jesus, but what is it doing in my, in my family room? In the middle of my... It doesn't go with the decor. The colors aren't the same. It doesn't match. Come on. You know, we're trying to build a theme here. That, you know, Chip and Joanna never have stuff like that sitting on their tables. So, <laughs> hey, what, what's up? So the wife proceeds to take the statue of Jesus and put it in his room. Uh, his study that he has had, his little man cave that he's got... You know, it's his statue, he bought it, we'll put it in there. So he walks in his study after she does that, not knowing that she had done it. He looks up, he goes, how'd Jesus get in here? This is not the place for Jesus. Jesus needs to play. Let's put it, okay, the wife didn't like it in the, in the family room. Let's put it in a place where when I wake up in the morning, I see Jesus. So he takes it and he puts it, up on the, uh, they have a little fireplace in their bedroom, puts it up on the mantle of his fireplace, that way when he wakes up every morning, 
he sees Jesus. So she proceeds shortly after that. <clears throat> she's putting away clothes or whatever. Sees Jesus up on the mantle. She goes, what is Jesus doing in our bedroom? That's not a great place. That doesn't go with the decor in here either. I don't know what he's thinking. And about that time, the grandson, who's been staying with them all week, he walks in and he said, he's just exasperated. He's like, well, now where are you going to put Jesus? And it brings up the question that we're going to attempt to answer today. Where do you put Jesus? In the story of Daniel 3, we have a battle between Nebuchadnezzar and three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it really, the question comes down to them. This is the question that they are trying to ask. Where are they going to put Jesus? Or where are they going to put God? For Nebuchadnezzar, God is just, Yahweh God is just one of the gods. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God is above all the other gods. God is the most high. God goes to the highest place. God demands all of their worship and all of their service. So essentially, that's what we're asking today. In this continuing culture of change, uncertainty of values, and the constant reminder that we do live in a fallen world, what are you doing with Jesus? Where are you placing Jesus in the life? Today we're looking at a story that I'm sure most of you have heard. Even if you have not grown up in church, you have heard about the men in the fiery furnace. Because it is such an amazing story. It is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we have a king that wants to put Jesus below himself. And we have three Hebrew boys that want to place Jesus and God above everything. Well, what about you? Where do you put Jesus in your life? Do you place Jesus in one spot in your life and then you go through a trial and realize that he's not in the place that you thought he was? Is he in the same place when somebody challenges you on your beliefs that he was before they challenged you? Nebuchadnezzar did not quite know what he would be faced with when he came across three Hebrew boys that chose not to bow down to him. So if you will, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, if you've not already done so, to see what happens when we take a stand in the midst of a trial and give God the opportunity to show his ability to be the all-powerful God amongst the many false gods that man has created. <clears throat> And so, please, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to read through this account. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the, perfect, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image 
that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and, they, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, <coughs> Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you, have not ser you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? who will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner, in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. When King Nebuchadnezzar, then, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. 
he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the, bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men, of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word and your scripture that will teach us today. For we pray that you open up our hearts to hear you. I pray that you be with the words that come out of my mouth. May they glorify and honor you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we're looking at Daniel chapter 3, we need to know, understand a little bit about what the background is here. Because it's finally happened. After years and years and years and many prophets the judgment of God has finally happened upon his people. Because for years and years and years, and over many prophets telling them differently, they continued to sin and worship false... The people of God continue to sin, worship false gods, and continue in their immorality. And so God has brought judgment upon his people. They have lost the land that God had promised them all because of their own actions. They have seen a total destruction of their capital city and temple and have been exiled to Babylonia, all because they refused to listen and continued to worship false gods. They have been expelled from their holy city and condemned to captivity and enslavement in a foreign land. I'm sure as any of you parents know, discipline is tough. And for God, it was tough as well. Because from the outside looking in, the God of the Hebrew people had failed them. He had failed his people. To the casual observer, the people that didn't worship God, their God, Yahweh, had shown himself to be inferior in power to the mighty gods of Assyria and Babylon. When the temple was leveled and ruins were burned, the Babylonian troops served notice to the world that their gods were mightier than Yahweh God. 
Their God was mightier than the Hebrew God. At this point, monotheism was exposed as an empty fraud. And it's important to understand this because it's these circumstances that make up the first part of Daniel. They make the first part of Daniel key in the history of Israel. Because we, knew, we know that God is not that type of God. We know that God is not an inferior God. We know that God, Yahweh God, is the most powerful God. He is the creator God. He is the sustainer of life God. And so it's through this first part of Daniel that God is showing his power over these other gods. That he is the powerful God that he claimed to be. He wanted to show that the Hebrews did not lose their land because he was weak. They lost it because he was strong. He was strong enough to love and discipline his people. He was about to use the same strength and the command of nature that he had used the last time the nation of Israel was in captivity in Egypt. Yahweh did not allow his people to go into captivity out of weakness, but rather to maintain his integrity as a holy God who carries out his covenant promises for the good and bad according to the response of his people. This was direct discipline on his people. The book of Daniel is a series of contests between false gods of human invention and the one true sovereign Lord and the creator of heaven and earth. And so Daniel's purpose in writing this book is to show the supreme and all-powerful nature of Yahweh. It is in this context that we find ourselves in the third chapter of Daniel today. It's under these circumstances that we find the God's people, the Hebrew people, in chapter 1, we see Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that have been uh, brought in to the king's court, brought into the king's palace. Because that's part of what he did when he overtook a people group. He would take some of them out and, and make them one of his own. But if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, uh, the king wants to make them one of his own by feeding them his food, by introducing them to his gods by showing them that they can be superior by following him. Well, these four Hebrew boys, they knew differently. They knew that their God was more powerful. They knew that Yahweh was more powerful. They knew that Yahweh could sustain them no matter what. So they went and they made a deal. And they said, look, we won't partake in your food. We will partake in the food that we are allowed to eat. We will not defile ourselves by your food. And at the end of this time, if we are weaker, then we will do what you ask. But if not, then we can continue to, to eat like we are. Well, as you would know, God showed up, made them stronger and smarter than they were before, or than any of the other men. And then in chapter 2, we see God, and we see that Nebuchadnezzar has this horrible dream freaks him out, brings all his wise men and all the people together, and he says, hey, if you can tell me what my dream is, you either tell me what my dream is, 
and you tell me the interpretation of my dream, or I will kill you. Nebuchadnezzar didn't mess around. And Daniel hears about this. And he goes to God and he says, God, please let me in on what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And he did. God showed up, told him the dream. He told it Nebuchadnezzar. He was able to interpret the dream. And God's power was displayed. And so as we come into chapter 3, for those keeping score, it's Yahweh 2, false God 0. And so chapter 3 opens up with our first point in our outline today. Unchecked power leads to spiritual confusion. And so here we have a king with unlimited power. He is the most powerful man in the known world at this time. They have just taken over one of the most powerful people groups of the time. The reputation of the Hebrews was known. Their God that they served, their God that they worshipped, made them strong. And they had heard about the battles and the, and the wars that they had won because of who was on their side. And all of a sudden, here's Nebuchadnezzar has just taken over these people. In fact, he is so full of himself that he has decided, I'm going to make a monument in honor of me. Not in honor of the nature god, not in honor of the sun god, not in honor of Marduk, the gold god, that provided them with their resources. I'm going to make this god, I'm going to make this monument in honor of me. Now, in these first seven verses, we really don't know why he did this. We don't know. It doesn't give us a reason why the monument was made. We don't know anything about that. But we do know that it was big. Uh, it was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So it's not believed that it was a, a, a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. We, we really have no idea what it was, but it, it was just made known that this is to honor Nebuchadnezzar, honor your king, and whenever you hear music, you will bow down and worship. And it was made of gold. Probably not solid gold, probably just gold uh, laid out over the top of wood or stone. But at 90 feet tall, that's a lot of gold. And so it displayed his power and who he was. But what's interesting is about the timing of this statue. Because I talked about Daniel 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Well, his dream, uh, as Daniel told it, uh, his dream was about a statue, a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. The head was made of gold, the torso was silver, uh, the abdomen was uh, bronze, and then wood. And then by the time he got down to the feet, it was a mixture of clay and iron, which we know is not very strong. And then there's a, a stone that comes out of the ground, knocks over the statue, and then is established as a kingdom that will never be defeated. So Daniel interprets the dream. He's like, all right, king, here's, here's your dream, and here's what it means. The head that's made of gold, that's you. That's your kingdom. And your kingdom is the strongest kingdom. 
But there will come people after you that will defeat you. There will be other people groups that come in and they will defeat your kingdom. Now they won't be as strong as your kingdom, which is the lessening of the, of the materials. We go from gold to silver to bronze to wood. They won't be quite as good as you, but they're, they will overtake you. But then there comes a stone out of the ground. Maybe a cornerstone. That knocks down the statue. Knocks down your kingdom. And establishes itself as a kingdom that will never ever be defeated. And it's right after he hears about this. In the very next chapter one that we read. Now we don't know how long it took to make the statue or anything like that. But it's right after this, he goes, I know that I just had a dream that freaked me out and all that, but I'm going to build a statue. I'm going to build a statue, but this time, instead of just the head being gold, the whole thing's going to be gold. And maybe there's something in the back of his mind that said, Hey, if I make the whole thing gold, then that means probably I won't be defeated at all because all those other materials are weak. Uh, this is gold. This is the most standing gold. Not only is, is, is gold strong, uh, it was worth a lot, but also they worship the god of gold, Marduk. And so here we have, he's building this golden statue. Just very interesting um, timing of it all. And maybe it's a direct response to that dream. Maybe it's saying that there are no kingdoms that will defeat me. We are the most powerful kingdom. I am the most powerful man. Nothing is going to defeat us. But he builds a statue, and in chapter 3, there it is. And the king wants to, def to, uh, to dedicate it, to celebrate it. So he calls everyone together, all the people that are in command, all the people that are in charge, because not only does he want to see people worship him as the most powerful man in the world, he wants loyalty. He wants to know that these people aren't going to come back and try to defeat him in some way. So he stages this big, giant worship service. He said, all right, we're going to bring all these people Everybody's going to come in, and he has a guy, a herald out there that's, that tells what's going to happen. Hear ye, hear ye. When you hear all of the instruments all together start playing music, you are to bow down and worship our faithful king, Nebuchadnezzar, by bowing to the statue that he has made. That's a lot of religious overtones, doesn't it? A lot of worship services out there that people hear the music and all of a sudden go into a program mode and do exactly what they've always done. Because they think something's going to happen to them. But instead of worshiping Yahweh, they're worshiping King Nebuchadnezzar. Sinclair Ferguson tells us this, the clearest indications of this kind of blasphemy are when individuals, not God, are the center of worship. Whenever much is made of a person, less is made about our Lord. 
We as people, we as, as the created beings that God created us to be, in our nature we are to worship. That's who we are. And in the world before sin came about, before sin was introduced in the world, we worshipped God. When sin came in the world, we began worshipping other things. We began worshipping things that tried to illustrate who God was. Or things that gave us power. When God has moved off the center of our worship, idolatry always follows. And this is what happens when unchecked power gets confused with our spirituality. And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. When this power goes unchecked, it wreaks havoc on those that try to keep God at the center of their worship. See, Nebuchadnezzar got lost. Because if you remember about our background of Daniel, it's not that Nebuchadnezzar was so strong that he was able to take down the people of God. It's that the people of God were being disciplined by their father. And God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to overtake the people and to enslave them. So it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's power that brought him there. It was God's discipline that brought him there. And Nebuchadnezzar got lost in all this. So these first seven verses of Daniel chapter 3 are really setting up the scene between the people of God in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Because from the beginning of their lives, they studied the Ten Commandments. And the first two of the Ten Commandments are this. You shall not have any other gods before me, and you shall not worship any graven image. Nebuchadnezzar is telling them to do both, or they will die a horrible death in the fiery furnace. This confrontation leads us to the dilemma that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face on what we learn shows us point number two in our outline. True love for God leads to true faith in God. See, Daniel is bringing back some guys that we had already been introduced to in chapter 1. And here they are again in the middle of a controversy. They were living their lives. They were doing what King Nebuchadnezzar had told them to do. Except they weren't going to bow down to this image. They weren't going to bow down to a false god. To them, it was part of who they were. They were followers of Yahweh God. And God tells us, not to worship other gods, and not to worship graven images. What we also learn at the end of chapter 1 is that Nebuchadnezzar really liked these guys. He admired them for standing up for what they believed. Now, it didn't stop him from making a decree to say, everyone will bow down to this image Except the Hebrews, I know they worship the one true God, so we'll let them pass. No. He said, everyone will bow down to this image and will bow down to me. And if you don't, I will throw you in the fiery furnace. It's just interesting. You know, there we have in, in uh, verse 6. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Immediately. But here, these Chaldeans, they see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down. They didn't do what they were asked to do. So they went straight to Nebuchadnezzar, played into his ego, and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, king, we have done what you asked us to do, but they did not. They disobeyed you. But then it says in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is in a furious rage and commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. It tells us back in verse 6, they were to be immediately thrown into the furnace. But I think it's out of the respect that Nebuchadnezzar had for these three boys. He gave them a second chance. So they come before him and he says, Hey, hey guys, is it true... Is I'm hearing a rumor out there. I'm hearing something going on. You know, I, I made this decree that said you're to bow down and worship this image when you hear the music go off. Hey, I heard something that maybe you didn't do that. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to play the music one more time. I'm going to give you that chance to, you just, when you hear the music, you bow down and you, you, pay respect to me. All right? And if not, then you're going in the fiery furnace. But then we get to verse 15. He throws one more little question on there. And at the end of verse 15, it says, And who is the God who, who will deliver you out of my hand? And then the story changes. The story hinges on these next two and a half verses. Because there at the, at the end of verse 15, we get the, almost a challenge from Nebuchadnezzar. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Me, the most powerful man in the world. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They're not doing it out of spite. I love their attitude. They're not doing it out of spite. They're not doing it out of meanness. They're not doing it out of sarcasm. They're just very matter of fact. Hey, king, we, we, we respect you. We don't really feel we need to answer you. Almost like you, you, know, you know where we stand. You know who we are. But in verse 17, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. It's almost like they're answering his question. One that he meant rhetorical, they're saying, hey, look, if, if this be your wishes... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, 
fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then verse 18 shows up. Because we already have that their faith is established. We know where they stand. We know who they are. Their faith is established. But then they say something like this. But if not, we know that our God can deliver us from the fiery furnace. We have no doubt about it. But if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. amazing is that it's like they they know and such a short phrase but a huge example to the faith that these three have Hebrews tells us that Shadrach Meshach and Abednego had a faith that could quench fires do you have that kind of faith in the midst of a trial can you honestly pray God I know that you can deliver me from this but if not, I will continue to follow you through it. Now, this was not the first stand that these boys had had to take. They had already taken a stand once, and it was, it was a little stand compared to this one. But it's that stand that prepared them for this one. It is their faith in the smaller trial that God sees that that prove that they can handle the much bigger trial. Their faith in the smaller trial increased their love of God so that they can make this stand now in front of the king and in front of the fire. God uses trials in the same way with us. As our love for, of God increases, our faith in God increases and often leads to a very unexpected outcomes, uh, which leads us to our next point today. Testing and trials leads to unexpected outcomes. Verse 19 starts the actual trial that, Nebuch that the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through. And we're all familiar with, with this. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he decides, you know, he bounds them up, leaves them in their clothes, bounds them up, gets his strongest guys to throw them in the fire, uh, orders the fire seven times hotter than it normally would be. He's like, I'm really going to make these... I mean, he's in a fit of... He is spitting mad. Like, you have, you, have, you have dishonored me. And the thing we keep seeing with Nebuchadnezzar is he is so fueled by his ego. I'm the most powerful man here. And you're not going to bow down to me? You will pay. Stoke the fire. Put more wood on the fire. Make this thing seven times hotter than it normally is. In fact, it was so hot and burning so hot that the guys that were supposed to put them in the fire, they got burned themselves. He gave them a second chance. There wasn't going to be a third. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall into the fire... I just picture Nebuchadnezzar kind of stepping back. He's turned his back on the fire. He's ready to go sit down in his chair and just bask in his glory, in his power. He's going to watch these kids suffer. 
Watch them just burn. Serves them right. They could have gotten out of this. They chose not to bow down to me. But then he looks in there. Wait a minute. Hey, didn't we put three guys bound up into the furnace? Isn't that what I remember doing? Absolutely, king, that's exactly. Yes, sir. Well, then, why on earth are there four guys unbound and one of them looks like the Son of God? Oh. How amazing is that? Isn't it interesting that the height of the trial that these men are going through, when they're actually placed into the fire, they are not alone? It's not just them there in the fire? I fully believe that this is what's called a Christophany. That this is Jesus Christ in the fire with them. This is the Son of God in the fire with them. He's not just, Jesus isn't just watching from the side. He could have done that. He could have been watching from heaven. Jesus is in the fire with them. They stood up for him, and now he is standing with them in the fire. Warren Wiersbe tells us, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. What this helps us to see most is that we are not alone, ever. When we are in the midst of, a, of the fire, God is right there with us. He is helping you get through the trial so that you can get on the other side of it and bring glory to his name, that you can give honor to him. Samuel Rutherford once said, duties are ours, events are the Lord's. As believers, as followers of Christ, our job is to be faithful. It's God's job in His good providence how He is going to work out the consequences of our faithfulness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not have to figure out how it was going to end. That was not their job. All they had to do was to remain faithful to the first two commandments. All they had to do was what was right in the sight of their God. How it worked out in God's providence is up to God. It is their ability to trust God, no matter what, that enables them to be faithful in the most dire of circumstances. Spurgeon once wrote, What have we to do with our consequences? It is ours to do, to do the right and leave the results with the, with the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar had seen all of this, his reaction is both predictable and it's quite unpredictable all at the same time, which leads us to our last uh, point today. Seeing God's power does not always lead to the same results. See, Nebuchadnezzar quickly gets them out of the furnace. 
It's like, hey, 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 guys, guys, come on, Quill. Hey. Y'all come here. What is going on? Let's just marvel at God here for a second. Verse 27. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. What? They were thrown in the fire with every single piece of clothing that they had on, even the hats on their head. They were bound up and thrown into the fire. And the only thing that was burned up in the fire were the ropes that were surrounded that were on their hands and feet. No hair on their head was singed. No smoke was even smelled on their clothes. I can't even walk into a barbecue restaurant without my clothes stinking. And they were in the middle of a furnace and didn't smell like smoke. How cool is God? God could have made it where it, their clothes burned, but their skin didn't. But he went above and beyond that. They didn't even smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar saw all of that. He saw the greatness of God. This is the third time that he has seen the greatness of God. And what does he do? The God of the Hebrews is still not his God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't say, blessed be my God. Blessed be this God that I will make my own. We see later on he still makes decisions based out of his ego. He recognized their God as a great God, but he did not, but not his God. Yahweh was still the God of the Hebrews. Back in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar asked that question. Do you remember the question he asked? What God will save you from my hands? And at the time, he thought it was rhetorical. At the time, he didn't think he was going to get an answer. In verse 28, he answers his own question. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Who's the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands? And got his answer. It's their God. It's their God that delivered them. It's their God that delivered them in, the, um, in a time when they chose to stand for their God and not bow to his. So in a matter of a few minutes, he's gone from a fit of rage, so mad he can't even see straight, to being in amazement of God. But it still doesn't change him. This is a reminder that no matter how much some people see God and his mighty works, 
they still choose to walk away and not make God their God. You know, there's a lot out there that's vying for our affection. With Nebuchadnezzar, it was power. With, with the rich young ruler, it was money. What keeps you from knowing about God to making God the object of your worship? What keeps you from making God head knowledge into heart knowledge? So I go back to my first question. Where are you putting Jesus? Nebuchadnezzar put Yahweh in with all the other gods. It's like, man, that dude, that dude does some cool stuff. It still wasn't his. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made God the God. The God above all other gods. The God creator. The God sustainer. That's their God. When we make a stand or when we go through trials, anything else that is in the spot that God needs should be in burns up every time. If you place money as your God, when you go through trials, money disappears. If you put power as your God, when you go through trials, power disappears. Almost four years ago, my, uh, my family received the news that none of us saw us coming. Get a call from my mom. Hey, uh, they were supposed to come now. We're supposed to all go out to eat. Hey, we're not going to come. Uh, something's wrong with your dad. I'm gonna go, we're going to go have him checked out. Think it may be a stroke, something. But what quickly turned from a stroke turned into diagnosis of brain cancer. Now, this is in the midst of my mom already having her own battle uh, of cancer. And oh yeah, God was leading me away from student ministry without quite revealing what the next steps in my journey were. We were in the middle of a trial. And it was tough. There were some tough times in, that, in those moments of dealing with all of that, of watching my dad slowly deteriorate. seeing my mom take care of him, of us figuring out, God, where are you leading? And it's always easy in times like that to ask, why me? God, why, why are you picking me for this? Why do we have to go through this stuff? I had a mentor and friend tell me one time, he's like, why not ask, why not me? Because it's in these trials, it's in these, these times that we go through things like this, that God strengthens our faith. God strengthens our, our love that we have for him, which prepares us to have faith in him. See, the truth that we held on to during that time was we knew that God had a plan. And we knew we were exactly where God wanted us to be. With our hands open and our hearts open for him to teach us. And about a little over a year ago, sitting on the front row, I had one of those moments. 
where God said, this is why. This is why you're here. See, I had to go through all of that to get to here. Because God wanted me in this place at this time. He wanted me in a spot that I could spend the last two years with my mom living in the same house. He wanted my family to worship together. He put me in a place where we are loved, to where we serve, and serve gladly. And it continued to show me that God never wastes a moment to teach his children. You see, no one ever expects that diagnosis to be cancer. No one ever expects to get called into their boss's office to learn that they have lost their job or to leave their garage and get into an accident that forever changes their lives. But it happens. And in Romans, we are called to present our bodies as a sacrifice, as our spiritual act of worship. When we do, we will not conform to this world but we will be transformed by the continuing renewal of our minds. It's in that constant renewal where we increase our love for God so that we can be faithful to God when it seems like everything around us is falling apart. This leads to my sermon in a sentence. In the midst of our trials as believers, we must continue to show our true love for God and our true faith in God by not doubting God's ability to deliver us, but also not presuming we know his will for our lives and leaving our fate in God's hands. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you. I thank you for leading me here. I thank you for leading us to this time. And God, as we enter into this time of invitation, I pray you speak to the hearts of the people in this audience. Lord, may our hearts be open to you for you to tell us whatever we need and to show us wherever we need to go. Because, Lord, you do send trials every day of our lives. But, Lord, we know you're using that to show us who you are and what you are. You are God the sustainer, you are God the creator, and you are God the lover. And you love your people. Lord, be with us during this time. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.